Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I have with me two of our brilliant attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm, Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney at the Murthy Law Firm, who's been with us more than 16 years, and Brian Green, who's also been with us for almost a decade at this point, uh, whose focus is on complex cases, denials, litigation, etc. So. Today's topic is visas and travel related issues and to share with you some of a little bit of the background and successes that we've seen. And so to share the success, unfortunately, you have to explain the nature of the problem so that people can see how to try to get over the issues. So for each of you as employers, when your employees are traveling, you need to figure out what are the kinds of issues at the U.S. consular posts abroad that your employees need to deal with. Um, Obviously, um, the ideal situation in any interview for a candidate coming in on an H-1 or an L-1, for example, would be if your candidate could altogether avoid the interview. Is that possible? Well, yeah, under the new visa interview waiver or personal interview waiver rules, there are certain criteria by which your employee may be eligible to avoid having to go through the interview at all. And this is in case the person is, was previously approved for the same visa classification and that visa is either still valid or has expired less than 12 months earlier and the last visa must have been issued in the same country from which they're trying to come in and apply, then they are eligible, for example, to f mail their passports and other details to get the visa. So that's just sort of this broad introduction that I'm talking about. Uh, you know, let me have uh, Aaron, maybe you just talk a little bit more about for categories other than H's and L's, like what are the broad overview rules? Sure. Well, first of all, Sheila, I think one of the big successes is the fact that they've expanded these programs a little bit, which makes it very nice and makes things a lot easier. Uh, one of the expansions uh, for categories other than H's and L's, they're pretty much the same type of rules, except instead of having a 12-month rule for when the visa expired, they've expanded it to an expiration period of up to 48 months. So if it has expired within the last 48 months and you also received it from the same country and you never previously received a denial in that category, you should, in fact, be able to use the visa waiver program. And that'd be great for B's, for travel visas, for S, for student visas. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So in terms of consultants, I know this is an issue. Can you share what's the concern, what is the rule, Brian, and how, what are the kind of successes that we've seen with notice of intents to revoke or deny? Sure. And before I jump into the, um, the nors and the noids, one nice thing, that the expansion that Aaron was talking about is when H-1B holders are going for that visa interview waiver program. It used to be you had to go back and be returning to work for the same employer. But as Aaron said, they've expanded that. And now you can be 
leaving and have worked for company A, but you're returning to work for company B and you either have a, a current valid visa or a visa expired in the last 12 months. So they've seen the success of the visa interview waiver program, these consular officers seeing 300 people a day, and they're trying to weed out the cases where they don't have to worry about that. So if you're an H&B worker, if you're an L2 spouse, you should try to go for that program, make it easier. But with H&B consultants, what we often find is problems where people are roving around the country, they're going to different end clients, and we've heard a lot about the Sameo Solutions case from about April of last year and the memo from this past July. And one of the problems is that we've seen this before, I think in 2010, these memos start to spread out. The memos now got to the consulates, and these consul officers will be asking these questions about where is your work location, you know, what's in the H-1B petition. And if there are differences, and Aaron will talk about this soon, about preparing the, your, your employees, if there are differences that are found at the interview, then you may end up having your H-1B petition reversed, sent back to, US, to USCIS, and then you may end up looking at this notice intent to review it, revoke you just talked about, and it slows everything down. Okay, so what about the problem of consular returns? I know we've been hearing, and as employers, many of you have probably seen, where there's either a 220, there's either fraud misrepresentation, 221G, some kind of a refusal or a soft or hard refusal. And then they say, well, we're sending your petition back to the USCIS. What does that mean, consular returns? How can it be avoided? What are the options? What are the time frames? So a consular return can happen for one of five reasons, basically. Statutory ineligibility, fraud, uh, if the petitioner withdrew the petition and it hasn't yet caught up or he's not aware of it, if there was a death of a petitioner or a relative, any of these types of things can really cause uh, a consular return. A consular return is a pretty steep penalty, and especially if it's something because of missing or incorrect information, which I'll get to in just one moment. But the thing about a consular return is it can cause a delay of easily between six months and a year. Uh, in a recent uh, teleconference with uh, USCIS with um, the ombudsman, uh, which is just recently published, they came out and they said a minimum time frame that you're looking at for a consular return is anywhere from 150 days up to a year. So it's a pretty steep um, penalty for, say, example, inaccurate information or missing pieces of information. Uh, you know, in um, February of this year, I had an opportunity to be on the panel with Lindsay Rothenberg, who was the chief in Chennai, who is the non-immigrant visa officer in Chennai. And uh, Ms. Rothenberg said something very interesting. She said they're not interested in denying petitions, but what they want to see is consistency with what was filed to the government is consistent with the benefit that you're asking for and that the employee knows and understands what that benefit is. So if you have one of those cases like Brian was talking about, a matter of Simeon situation, where all of a sudden you're dealing with a different end client perhaps, well, perhaps I didn't need to file until January 15th of 2016 my amendment, but you're going to the consulate and you're showing mismatched information. You, you got a huge chance of getting a 221G, and you've got an even larger chance of that file getting kicked back for a potential notice of intent to deny in a six-month to one-year delay. So what you want to do, first of all, is kind of be able to predict, hey, I've moved him. I should do an amendment before he travels. That's a very good thing that you want to take into account. Um, another thing that you want to take into account is if you're looking at a 221G, you're looking at a delay, you're looking at the potential of a year, 
you're not able to file the new petition for anything else, look for the possibility of the new thing that came out this year of the H-4 possibility and the EAD as an alternative to bring people back in. Sometimes you have to create the opportunity legally and lawfully when the, oppor- when the door is closed so that you can make this all kind of work out in a good, pl- in a good way. So, yeah, so I guess the bottom line, Aaron, then is you're saying the employee has to read the petition that was filed because that way you're going to be consistent in the answer uh, what the consular officer is reviewing as what was submitted and filed with the USCIS and what you're answering during the visa interview. Yeah, absolutely. Know what's in the petition. Be consistent with that. Uh, any changes in work location, file the amendment before you travel, and then look for creative alternatives if necessary to bring the person back in. I think that's the best way to deal with these type of consular returns. Okay. So, so one of the other points that I think it's important for us to mention is L1s. I don't know how many of you on the call are actually very actively participating in the L1 program because you have a branch subsidiary parent or affiliate in another country and you're bringing people into the U.S. to work, sort of transfer people like intra-company transferees. Uh, people, companies that have been using the L1 blankets have been seeing routine denials, especially the person's job duties don't match perfectly or the education isn't in the specific area in which the person's coming to work, sort of defeating the very purpose for which the L1 blanket program was created. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of debate on this. I know there are examples in case situations. Does, does either one of you want to say anything, Aaron or Brian? Mm-hmm. Well, we've seen situations where, for example, you'll have the employer, you'll have the petitioner letter that's inconsistent with the blanket itself. So if you're going to go for a blanket and you're going to go to the consulate, remember, you don't have a USCIS reviewing an application or a petition. This is a case of first impression. Each case, case by case, is a case of first impression to the consulate, which means you can't just genericize your paperwork and hope that it's something that will work out. It's really in the details. You have to make sure your paperwork is consistent with your blanket and make sure that your employees are knowledgeable about where they're going, what they're going to do when they arrive, who they're going to, what the work location is, and where they're going to stay. I think that will help enormously in increasing the success rate of each case. Okay, wonderful. Um, Let's now switch and jump, Brian, since it's been a while since you've been um, sort of chatting with us. Can we talk very briefly, how can an employer... Uh, try to look and see because the H-1 cap is met, the the employer, the company may not be eligible for L-1s, for example. We've often heard of in the old days, something called B-1 in lieu of H-1 visa. Uh, Does that still exist? Is it possible to get the approval? Can employers who are on this phone call, conference call today, see if they might be eligible and what it takes? Absolutely. We've seen successes in the B-1 one in lieu of H-1B context. The problem is that this category, or it's not even really a category, but this exception created by the Foreign Affairs Manual, it's gotten some bad press recently involving some Indian companies. So trying to do a B-1 in lieu of H-1B in India would be pretty difficult. But we've had success, and one of our recent examples came out of Europe, and we had a situation where the, you know the person did not have the education for the H-1B, but had the skills, had the experience, and the work was specialty occupation work. 
and the person had the proper corporate relationship, the money was being paid by the overseas entity. All those boxes were checked, and we were able to get this person in to work on a big construction project. And the person was here working as if they were hired at H-1B, but we told the consulate what the purpose was, and they gave a B-1 that was annotated saying in lieu of H-1B. And a really neat thing about the B-1 in lieu of H-1 is duration of the project. If you can show that it's six months or less, you can show it's a very short duration, you can show you're really not going to need the person afterwards, then they don't look at it as something that's going to expand beyond what you're asking for. It gives you a much better chance of success. Again, very difficult in India, though. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. I just say, keeping in mind, it can't really be a consultant coming into work. There has to be a nexus between the foreign company and the work performed in the U.S. Okay. So now let's uh, look at another important issue where we've seen where employees have been denied their visas because of an incorrect finding of inadmissibility by the consular officer. So we see this happening at consulates around the world, where sometimes it could be a misunderstanding about which are the, with, because of the notes that were entered into the system, either by USCIS or another agency within the Department of Homeland Security or the Customs and Border Protection at the airport. Sometimes it's just a mistake that leads to a denial. I remember years and years and years ago where there was a medical doctor who was actually denied entry, uh, was had a 212A6C fraud by issued by the U.S consulate in Chennai. And so when he tried to get a visa, but he went to study medical school sort of in the Caribbean, I think it was Jamaica. And when he tried to apply for a visa to come to the U.S., they said, sorry, we can't give you a visa to enter the U.S. because you have a fraud finding. And then when we contacted Murti Law Firm, when we, our law firm contacted Chennai, the U.S. consular post in Chennai, the chief of the non-immigrant visa section of the H-1 sections basically said that when I explained that this was a clear misunderstanding, it shouldn't have been issued, there was no fraud, the person said everything truthfully, and when they understood what happened, they actually canceled it revoked that fraud, took it off from their system. And because only the person that has put it generally is the one that can remove it, not a different agency, they removed it. And then the U.S. consulate in Jamaica was actually, in Trinidad was able to, um, or in Jamaica, I guess, uh, was able to issue the visa for this person. So we see the same thing with software professionals, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely, Sheila. And we've had uh, a couple of successes recently where we're able to strip away these incorrect findings. And it's often very frustrating for the employer and for that that worker because the government isn't very inclined to explain when was the fraud hit made or when was that you know criminal inadmissibility finding made. So you almost have to peel this onion and figure out what happened and when it happened. So if you have a worker and if they're given, heaven forbid, if they're at the consulate and they're told you're inadmissible, the person needs to be able to look the consular officer in the eye and say, I don't understand. Can you please explain to me? Can I have a document? Can you give me a written denial that says why? And then that document becomes the beginning of your, your trail. But in our cases, we found at least one person who was from India had an incorrect criminal inadmissibility saying he had a conviction or had this, had, I guess, at somewhat point admitted to committing the offense uh, that he was accused of. It wasn't true. And it's, it took years and years. But eventually we got Department of State through the visa office to remove that fraud finding. Then we found out that he also had a hit in the Interpol system from France saying this person has a warrant out for them. So again, peeling the onion, fixing all the problems, we got both the criminal inadmissibility hit removed, the Interpol red corner notice removed, and the person was then eventually approved for a new travel visa. And he was able to 
to come here and visit his grandchildren. So it was a beautiful moment. And there's actually a lot of the cases. I think uh, India has a s- different or unusual, strange law where a woman, the girl side, can just file a complaint mm-hmm. against the boy and the entire boy's family, the in-laws, the parents, the relatives, the sister-in-law, brother-in-law. And um, it's the famous, I think, Indian Penal Code section... 248 or something. It's just blank. I'm just blank on the section right now. But under that section, basically, it's an automatic presumption of guilt, which sort of violates the fundamental tenets of the U.S. of U.S. laws and the U.S. Constitution that you cannot be presumed guilty and prove your innocence or prove a negative, which is almost impossible to prove. So at the Murthy Law Firm, we have actually been successful in challenging these kinds of denials of H-1 visas or green card I-485 approvals, green card immigrant visas, etc., by pointing out that under the U.S. law, this would absolutely not be permitted, that it's improper, it's incorrect, and we have been successful in fighting these kinds of cases. And we have written a few articles on this also in multi.com. I'll just add one more uh, suggestion. That's where we've had um, companies where their workers were given 212A6C fraud findings, and you mentioned that earlier. And we've been able to challenge this to the point of actually filing lawsuits against the USCIS where these fraud hits had come out of and involving Department of State. And then eventually, it takes time, but eventually the, the visas are issued, and you can tell from the visas, you can tell from FOIA's Freedom of Information Act requests that those, those fraud findings have been removed. So it's a drastic step, but if someone's banned for life in the U.S., you have to consider it. Right, right. In general, I've, we have found that consular officers tend to be very hesitant to remove something that somebody else before them has put on the system because they presume that that person's probably right. So the burden is then on the client, you as the employer, us as the law firm, to come in and explain why we believe there must have been an error for them to either reverse it or unfortunately sometimes file a lawsuit to challenge the government to force them to do what they're supposed to take care of and do in the first place. So now let's move to the sort of connected but slightly different role of the strategies for success during the visa interview at all. We talked about earlier about the ideal situation is to obviously avoid go getting the visa, having to attend a visa interview if you're eligible under the visa interview waiver program because your visa hasn't been expired more than 12 months, or if it's in other cases other than H and L, can even be up to 48 months uh, that the visa has uh, not expired, has been expired for within less than 48 months rather. Um, and so those are kinds of issues. I remember uh, there was one case where the children had been separated from the parents um, because the parents had come into the U.S. on a B-1, B-2, then switched to H-1B. And so the U.S. consular post, again, this was Chennai, I believe, because this was before Hyderabad consulate had opened, which itself has been right now five or seven years. I guess we date ourselves. Um, but the uh, U.S. consulate had denied and separated the children from the parents for almost eight years. So the children were growing up without the parents, and the parents finally came to Uh, contact me at the Murthy Law Firm maybe several years ago and said, you know, we're really, really upset and we want to go back and we don't know what to do. And so we went and showed and proved that the consulate cannot deny the visa based on 214B and that there was no real legal reason to deny the parents and whatever they did was compliant with the law and they were approved for their change from B1, B2 to H1, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, at the end of eight years, the family was reunited and the parents, as you can imagine, were beyond happy. They were ecstatic that we were able to pull a rabbit out of a hat and become magicians in their eyes. 
and ideas. I know, Aaron, you want to talk about a couple other examples, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So I always advise clients, I say the easiest way to avoid the visa interview is don't travel. So, but I, uh, many times people tell me, but it's my wedding, so they're kind of stuck. Or but, my sister's wedding. Or my or sister's my, wedding, mm-hmm. right? Or some type of uh, some type of family event that's going on. You know, for H's and L's, it's it's really as I mentioned earlier, it's about matching up the details. It's you check the work location, you check the um, end client, you check the job duties, the compensation. Uh, you have all of that very consistent. You have to make sure that it's consistent with the petition that was filed. Um, if there's anything that doesn't match, uh, even now, Simeon says if you, matter of Simeon says if you need a new LCA, you need a new petition. And they're saying you need a new amended petition and file it by January 15th is a big jet deadline. But the truth of the matter is that even if you don't need a new LCA, if you're going to travel and you're going to see that there's going to be differences between what you what you filed and what you have, it's probably a good idea to do the amendment. In terms of the actual employee going to the interview, so many, many times people will tell you this over and over again, it's not the paperwork so much as the consistency and the knowledge of the interviewee, in other words, the employee who understands the dynamic of the job. So they may perceive themselves in a technical fashion as doing job A, but from a generic fashion as prepared by the lawyer, it might be job A plus or A plus two or A plus three. And knowing how the lawyer described it, knowing how it was acceptable and the company perceives it, knowing where you're going, what you're doing, all of the who your supervisors are, all of those things are going to be enormously helpful when you start to get asked questions by the consular officer at the window, assuming you can't avoid it by going through the visa waiver uh, program that's out there. Uh, the last thing that's there is, well, I've mentioned it already, but it's just simply avoiding those inaccuracies and inconsistencies. I think that's, that's a very good way to wrap it is just to remind of that point. And if you're able to do that, I think you'll have a higher chance of success. Okay, thank you, Aaron. Talking about travel, so the next big point is obviously when the person is, let's say, good news, you got the visa, it's stamped in your passport, you're now on the flight, you arrive at the U.S., either airport or land port or seaport at a port of entry, and we see problems, see problems all the time. So, Brian, what is the most common kinds of situations that we see? I think in general, we see a lot of people, they're put into what we call secondary inspection. And Aaron and I have, and I know you've also toured different ports of entry. We've seen it, and there's soft secondary where a lot of people get sent in and they have to check their bags. They have to you know, look at their immigration paperwork. But then there's also these hard secondary situations where the officers are not entirely sure that you're coming for the right purpose. or they see something wrong, you're flagged in the system. And unfortunately... On the plus side, maybe you're there for a couple hours and you're already tired when you arrive, but you're eventually admitted and you have your I-94 card in the system and you you can go. But some people are not allowed in the country, and it happens to H-1B workers, it happens to L-1 workers, it happens to F-1 students, even people are working on OPT or CPT. And what the worst case scenario is that they are given what's called expedited removal. And it should be used, hopefully sparingly, because the, the real concern is it bans that person from returning to the U.S. for five full years, and the only way around it would be a waiver. And other people, the, consul- the, the border officer, the CP officer, 
sees a problem. It's not bad enough to give you a fraud fighting and give you this five-year ban or a lifetime ban, but they will go ahead and they'll say, well, I'll give you the chance to withdraw your application to be admitted to the U.S. What do you want to do? And if the person understands what they're facing, they'll say, well, I'll withdraw and you know fight this another day. But the person then has a canceled visa and they have to go back on the next flight. So that trip ends up being 40 hours. So regardless of what the person's coming for, this can arise. And some of the best successes we've had, at least in, in the cases I've got to work on with Aaron here, is that we've been able to reverse some of these situations, either get the expedited removal order withdrawn from the record, or in the case where someone had a visa denial, we're able to get the system updated with some notes that allow for another visa to be issued afterwards. The interesting thing is they actually, by law, are not allowed to cancel what they've come up with the decision at the port of entry at the, by the CBP. But when clearly it's an error and you've proven it, they say, oh, we're not supposed to do this, but because you, attorney, counselor, have basically twisted our arm and proven to us why we were wrong, we're going to go ahead and correct the record and take care of your client. Right. And we've actually seen situations where this can be avoidable. You know, there's there's a there's a saying that says perception can become reality in a sense that the officer's perception will become your reality if you're not careful. So, for example, there was a woman who was told to bring all of her documents with her, uh, her mark sheets, her transcripts, and she was going to school. And this lady um, also, she completed a, a bona fide massage certificate program, and she had that as well. And they didn't look at the other documents, but they looked at this young lady who was going to school, and they looked at the massage certificate, and they jumped to a certain conclusion. And they focused on the conclusion, and the lady was not, the, this young lady was not able to respond properly. Uh, that situation was one where they were actually putting her on the plane and they issued an expedited removal saying you're coming in here for the wrong classification and the purpose of what you're coming for is an inappropriate thing. Uh, that was one where we actually had the person, we were able to speak to the consul, to the port of entry person, to the chief over there, to the assistant port director in that particular port, and we were actually able to get them to see it from a different perspective. And because we were able to get them to see it from a different perspective, they physically took her off the plane and they took back the expedited removal at that point in time. So a lot of it has to do with perception. And I'll just this give, is almost like a movie. This is like yeah, incredible. Well, there's you know another example is is these from we had a woman who apparently got married and uh, or we 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 had a situation where a woman got married, and um, and um, you know and when she came into the port of entry, she checked the wrong box, and that alone can be an issue. And that was a question with the proper mar marriage registry in India. She said, "If I didn't register my marriage, am I really married? Am I not married?" An issue that came up which that one, thank God, did not end up in an expedited removal. So there are issues that come up. A lot of it has to do with perception, and a lot of it has to do with preparing and being able to document things. It's strongly recommended that if you have a situation, you really want to speak to a qualified attorney in advance to try to work out the details before you find yourself in a funny place. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, Brian? Yeah, I just want to say that the H-1B workers, often what causes the CP officer to really give them the scrutiny are things like text messages in their phone, emails in their phone or their computer, copies of their resumes, their LinkedIn uh, profiles. If they're saying something that's different than what was in their H-1B petition, if they're coming to work for ABC Corporation as a consultant, but on their LinkedIn they say, I work for Exxon, the end client, those uh, those 
problems, those disparities between the information may cause them to, to say, well, I'm going to let you in. Or you have paychecks showing that you're living in New Jersey, but your end client is in Minnesota and you're spending almost all your time in Minnesota. So workers need to know what's what they're bringing with them, information, data, possessions, all can be searched, as Aaron was talking about, and they have to be consistent, and you have to worry about that perception. If you are calling yourself the employee of the end client, the border guards may not see that distinction. Yeah, and the other thing I think it's important for you to remember is when you sometimes might bring some people from abroad, maybe not even on an H or L, but just on a B1 to attend meetings or some of your staff from time to time, uh, if they're going to be coming with the idea that after a few months they'll file the H1 papers, and if you're coming on a B1, B2, as you know, it's a short-term tourist kind of visa, business meeting, business visa or tourist visa, if you bring in three or four suitcases fully jam-packed with a lot of personal belongings, they're going to be like, really? This is a two-week, three-week visit? Why do you have so many things? You should have a backpack practically or like a small suitcase, one suitcase, definitely not three, four, five suitcases filled with things. And sometimes people think they're so clever. But remember, the Customs and Border Protection, before you enter the United States, all of the constitutional protections that are afforded to most permanent residents and U.S. citizens uh, is absolutely not afforded to a foreign national coming into the U.S. And the CBP at the Port of Entry is allowed to open your luggage. Uh, Actually, they can open your laptops, review contents of your laptops. If you've uh, exaggerated your credentials on your resume, for example, and there's a mismatch, they can actually say fraud and send you back. We've seen all kinds of cases where they've opened, as Aaron just explained, seen a certificate for some other subject or seen even sometimes they have a business card in the name of a different company than the H-1B employer they're coming for and the U.S. Um, and the CBP officer uh, of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security basically says, aha, we got you, fraud, and tries to send them back. And we have to then try to overcome it and explain what's going on, why, why not. And sometimes it's tough because this person may have volunteered information or signed a document. And coming to documents, if, they have, if you or your employee have signed a bunch of papers and documents at the port of entry, try to get a copy of it because a complete record will allow the lawyer coming in to understand what you've already agreed to under oath in writing as having happened rather than now us trying to say, well, that my client never said that or did that. At the Murthy Law Firm, we have been very successful over the past you know, 10, 15, 20 years in getting some really crazy expedited removal orders reversed and reviewed, uh, rescinded them, canceled them, cleaned up systems, removed inadmissibility findings. But it's not always possible in every single case. And prevention is always cheaper than cure, because why do you want to pay any law firm or lawyer, including us at the multi-law firm, if you can avoid it by being extra careful, talking to the lawyer before boarding the plane and not bringing eight suitcases with you on a tourist visa, for example? or even more than one suitcase. So let's jump in, sort of try to wrap it up because we are sensitive to trying to wrap this up and make the teleconferences between 30 to 45 minutes. So what are some of the other problems that can occur at ports of entry and how can the employees be prepared for it, Uh, Aaron? Brian has already mentioned a couple of them, so I'm Mm going to hit them really quickly. One thing is in lieu of expedited removal, the officer can choose to say, um, they can offer you the option of withdrawing your request for admission and allowing you to just go back home. Uh, if you ever come to that option, unless it's egregious that the officer's making an egregious mistake, and even then, 
uh, it's usually a good idea to accept that uh, that ability to withdraw rather than take an expedited removal, which in my opinion is 10 times harder to undo. If you do take a withdrawal, so then you are going to have to go back to the consulate and you are going to have to apply for a new visa to come in. And that is going to be in your record. So they are going to ask you in the DS form, the DS-160, um, it does very clearly stay, ask if you've ever been refused admission. So this brings me back to um, what Judge Gossett used to say in all situations like this, the rule called the three Ds rule documentation, documentation, and documentation. You really want to get your documentation together. You want to get the situation, the story together of exactly what happened. You want to be able to present strongly to the consulate if they raise the issue. Uh, Brian also mentioned the other issue, so I'll just touch on it. It's if you have OPT or CPT and you're supposed to be working and going to school in one location, but you end up working in one location, which is a very far distance from where the school is, which you're supposed to be connected to. So it raises the issue of something called a professional student or a perception of the school is not the main focus area. Again, that's problematic and can cause them to have a misperception and also for them to turn you around and to allow you to and to request you to withdraw. Uh, finally, um, if do you see that you're getting admitted, but you find yourself having long delays at the at the port of entry for one reason or another, there always appears to be a long delay. Uh, it's likely there's some type of hit or flag on your record that's been cleared and a ghost of it, just some type of perception still remains in the system. There's a system called TRIP, which is Travel Redress inquiry program. Is that mm -hmm. correct, Sheila? I'm mm -hmm. always a little off on the acronyms. Mm -hmm. But TRIP is a USCIS program. It's from DHS and USCIS. They'll actually, you can put in the request on a form and they'll actually go and look at it. And if they can clear it out of the system, it'll make your life a lot easier. Yep. So you can see there's a lot of cool stuff going on. It's scary stuff if you're in person entering uh, the United States for you or as an employer, for your employees, etc., or you just even as a person who's a non-U.S. citizen entering the country. Uh, what about the issue about the I-94 cards? How does that, because, you know, there are eight dates, now it's more online than hard paper copies. How does that impact uh, it can impact anyone who's traveling on any visa category, but we see it often with H-1B workers because they have that three-year or less validity period. People's passport dates sometimes vary. You have expiration date problems. You have PED dates on the visas. And unfortunately, the, the, the primary inspection officer at CP probably has about one to two minutes to inspect you. So people are going through. You've been traveling for 21 hours. You're tired. You don't remember exactly which you know, I-797 you gave to the officer. You don't have paper I-94 cards for most people anymore, so it's online. You don't check it right away, and then a year later we find out the I-94 was what we call truncated. It was shortened. The person has now gone out of status. They might maybe are accruing unlawful presence, not sure, but then we have to try to fix the problem. It's important to look at your I-94 cards as soon as you can after you've entered the country. So you go home, the next day you wake up, you check your I-94 card online, if you do it the same day you travel, it's even better. And if you see that there's a problem there, you contact your attorney right away. These things can be fixed before the I-94 cards expire if it was a CBP mistake. But after the I-94 cards expire, it's much harder for us to deal with. And I know that we had one recent success we wanted to share, which was uh, a nanny was coming into the U.S. to work for a family of U.S. citizens that were stationed abroad almost all the time, but were coming back to the U.S. for one finite amount of time. And the person came to the, the border, and they could get a full one-year I-94 card, but unfortunately they weren't able to express it to the officer in the right way. They got a six-month card. 
the problem is that the worker needs to get an EAD card, which takes at least 90 days to get approved. So you end up with this circle where you're getting three-month EADs, but they're only good for three months and you get these gaps. So we were able to go back to the port of entry and explain the problem. And the, the border guard said, yep, the law says you can have one year. It's in our discretion to do it. They gave a one-year I-94 card, so now this person's going to get an EAD of hopefully nine months and only have to do it twice instead of doing it six or seven times. Mm -hmm. Typical shorts that take place or truncated times that take place is usually if your passport's going to expire shortly. Usually they'll give you, uh, for people that are on that special list like India, where they will give you up to the date of the passport, uh, not six months before. And also if you've got a new approval, but you're using a already existing unexpired visa from a previous petition, there's something called a PED that, again, Brian had alluded to. PED stands for Petition Expiration Date that's actually stamped onto your visa foil in your passport. So what happens is they see the PED on the visa, and they don't even bother to look at the 797 approval, and they just give you that truncated date. So those are two times when it happens and times when you should be careful. Absolutely. So just being mindful that, uh, uh, that that the time is running out and we so much appreciate your being part. We want to share with you some good, cool strategies or some tips, reinforce the importance of strategies that we've been um, careful to advise clients and people who are traveling is the first thing I'll throw it out. And then Aaron and Brian, I invite you both to jump in with pearls of wisdom to share with employers on the call. First, as I've sort of alluded to and hinted at before, is be aware of all of your belongings when you're traveling, including the data on your mobile phone and in your laptop, because these can be searched by the Customs and Border Protection. Your text messages, your emails, your documents, hard copies, soft copies can all lead to an expedited removal order, which means deportation or a cancellation of your visa based on fraud. Aaron? Secondary, soft secondary, when you cross through the CBP, it really can happen for almost any reason. Uh, it basically means the officer can't make a determination in a minute and a half to two minutes. Uh, so kind of build it into your mind. Eat something on the plane before you leave. Uh, drink something. But you may be figure that it's possible to be delayed several hours in the airport. It's good to stay calm. It's good not to get upset. Those types of so responses. So plan extra time between your flights yeah. to reduce the stress. Okay, yeah. Brian? And Sheila, I recommend people be careful before they travel to only carry the I-797 that they want to use that would be the, the longest or the best amount of time for their I-94 card. So carrying two or three I-797s, carrying all of your I-797s just kind of invites a problem. Right, because you're more likely to get the older one and they're going, you're going to confuse the CBP inspector in two minutes to make a quick decision. Keep only the corrected one, the one you plan to use and work with that particular employer. Also, uh, ideally, you want to have your employees take an airline or a flight that arrives during the normal business day when you as the employer or the company, whether it's your HR or you as the owner of the company or whoever the immigration paralegal contact is, et cetera, can be contacted by telephone during normal business hours so that you can confirm details about the job title, the job duties, the work location, or any other questions that the CBP inspector may have and reassure them. Because if you're not available, sometimes they'll keep that person overnight uh, in detention. So your employee is going to be stuck practically in, in chains uh, with handcuffs, which is really scary for people in other cultures. And following that employee, you know, kind of vein for H-1Bs, you should also be aware that details exist about your employee and your company online. 
if the employee's LinkedIn profile says that they're working for an end client, but they're actually working for you, if their resume shows some type of relationship with somebody else and not with you, uh, any of these types of things can be a basis to key in on the fact that um, that there's a potential issue even when there's not and could be a basis for there to be a refusal of admission and the possibility of a visa cancellation. Uh, this is a very big problem, by the way. It comes up with consulting uh, companies in the consulting industry um, and one that uh, d that CBP does not look past. They actually will focus in on it. Yeah. So as you can see, um, travel issues, port of entry issues, customs and border protection issues, consular issues, big, big deal because you approve, you spend a lot of money as an employer filing the petition, filing fees, lawyer fees, other costs and expenses, the airline ticket, bring your employee onto the airport and then you find problems at the port of entry, etc. So it's a very big issue. It's very important for your employees to read the petitions, to be aware of all of these issues and for you as the employer to be there to support the employee. I want to thank my brilliant panelists, Aaron Finkelstein and Brian Green. I want to thank each of you for taking time in your busy and valuable time to participate in today's Murthy Law Firm monthly teleconference uh, to understand and learn issues to help you, your employees, and your company. And hopefully you'll never ever have any problems with all of the fabulous tips and advices and secrets and success stories we've shared with you this afternoon. But if you ever have any problem or somebody doesn't follow these instructions or forgets or you somebody drops the ball, with, you know that you can count on us here at the Multi Law Firm because the best legal team in the world to help you and your company and your employees for all of your immigration matters. Thank you once again. Have a great day.